You would turn with me in your New Testaments to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13 will be there for the lesson of, of this hour, and we will be looking at quite a bit of, of the book of Hebrews, uh, to a certain degree at least, this morning. And so make sure that you are open to that um, great epistle. Hebrews chapter 13 and in verse 8. It's a verse that we know very well. It tells us, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm sure that you've wondered at times about the placement of that verse, yet have rejoiced and taken comfort in its sentiment. It's certainly a powerful verse and an important verse to consider as sons and daughters of God, as brethren of Christ, of those who are his servants and who are citizens of his kingdom, that he remains the same always and forever. And certainly that gives us stability, that gives us confidence, it gives us peace. But I think that as this verse in and of itself is a testimony to the character and nature and faithfulness of God and His Son and of His Word, it also within its very context is exceedingly important for us to consider and remember. Certainly the immutability of God is highlighted and emphasized throughout the entirety of, of the Bible. We see it set on display throughout the Old Testament in God's relationship with His people, a relationship that really takes on an image of a roller coaster, up and down, left and right. Very inconsistent, but none of the inconsistency lies with God. It always was trouble that came from the character of His people and their unwillingness to be faithful to Him and consistent in the relationship with Him. We remember in Isaiah 59 that the Holy Spirit revealed the nature of sin and its effects, that it separates us from God, but he first noted that it's not that God, his ear is not open that it cannot hear, and his hand is not shortened that it cannot save. God is in the same spot. God is in the same place. You have departed. You have sinned and severed this relationship. And so the immutability of God is certainly on display here in Hebrews 13 and verse 8. We see it in Hebrews chapter 6 when he's encouraging the readers about the faithfulness of God and his promises and gives the example of the promise to Abraham and how God promised and made an oath to demonstrate the immutability of his counsel so that we, as well as Abraham and his family and the Jews, but also we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. And so it is certainly a comfort. It is certainly a blessing, but it also while it stands as a great and wonderful encouragement and exhortation, in context stands as a warning, stands as an admonition to these very brethren the Hebrew writer is addressing. And I think that we should understand it in its context and realize its practical application for us today. Consider the context of the entirety of the Hebrew epistle. When he says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, nearing the very end of this wonderful epistle. What had preceded it? What surrounds it? What's the epistle addressing? 
you might be inclined to think that this is a treatise on how much better Christ is than the Old Testament and that system. And certainly that is the case. But why is he spending so much time and detail on those fundamental points as it relates to the gospel of Christ? These are obviously Hebrew Christians. They are Jewish by their nature and they are turning back to that obsolete system. They are being discouraged through the various trials and afflictions and tribulations and evidently, as we'll see in chapter 13, are even being influenced by false teachers who are trying to persuade them to grasp hold of this system that pertained to the flesh and only foreshadowed and typified the very thing they embraced in Christ. Why are they turning away from that? When Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. At one point in time, you embraced him. And he's still in the same spot, but you are drifting away. Notice in chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, We must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. You notice that word, therefore. He had just spent time demonstrating how God had spoken through the prophets to the fathers, and he had spoken through angels, but now he speaks through his son. And the entire first chapter contrasts Jesus, showing him to be much better and in a profound way higher, transcendent to all the best prophets you read about under the Old Testament and even angelic beings. And for this reason, we've got to take heed to the things we have heard. He demonstrated that it was spoken by the Lord and confirmed to us by those who heard him. But he says, lest we drift away, lest you drift away from that spoken word. In chapter 3 and in verse 6, when he contrasts Jesus with Moses and just not downing Moses and our view of him, but emphasizing the magnificence of Christ in his nature as a son. Moses merely served as a servant in the house, but Christ is a son over the house. And he says in verse 6, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. And while that's in a form of exhortation, it implies that they're not holding fast their confidence. They're not holding fast their confession. He'd say in verse 12, after giving the example of the Israelites, telling them don't follow after their bad example and hardening your heart and turning away from God, he tells them, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. This is the direction that they were trending. He'd continue with that illustration in chapter 4 and verse 1 and says, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. You're not in heaven yet. You haven't found the rest yet. And he demonstrates that in this chapter. He's telling them, don't make the same mistake. God promised them Canaan and they got up to the edge of Canaan and because of unbelief and disobedience, they never got to see it. They never got to inhabit it. You have not yet received your reward. Be careful lest you fall short of it. Verse 11, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Verse 14 seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Why are you loosening your grip on it? 
And then we see in chapter six, as he had told them that they should have been teachers by now, and now they need the milk of the word again, need to be taught the fundamental principles of the oracles of God. He warns them about the direction that they're headed with very graphic language. He spoke about the blessings that they had received. And if someone receives these blessings and then they fall away, it's impossible to renew them to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. And notice what he says in verse 7 and 8. The earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. They had once been fruitful. They had once received the blessings of God's word and that life-giving shower upon them produced what it was intended to produce, but now it's barren. And you're near to being cursed. You're near to being burned up. That's the direction they're heading in. Chapter 10 and in verse 22, he would tell them in words of encouragement to draw near, but then he'd say, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why would he have to say that? They were loosening their grip. They were wavering. They were trending the wrong direction. In chapter 10 and verse 35, don't cast away your confidence. You have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. And he quotes from Habakkuk chapter two about a time period where this prophet is really struggling with all of the confusion concerning the sinfulness in Israel and how God's going to deal with it, with a sinful nation, a nation more wicked than even his people. And he had to endure. He had to be faithful. And then in chapter 12, when he addressed the fact that these struggles that they're going through, through, if they have faith, God can actually and intends for it to be used for their betterment, warns them. Verse 12, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. That's the context, brethren. It's a wonderful verse. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But that's not just a random truth that is just stated. But it's within a context of a people who are departing from the one who has remained the same from their initial conversion all the way through their various trials. Hebrews 2 and verse 1, the American Standard Bible renders it this way. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. From it there in the American Standard Version is supplied, but it's because it's implied in the very text. Drift away. What do you mean by that? Just kind of drift and and have no sense of direction? Well, certainly that's a part of it, but there is an object that is staying firm and put. There's something that is rooted and grounded and permanent, and you are drifting away from it. There's a standard. There's a solution to problems. There's the panacea for sin. There is the salvation of your souls. There is your Lord and Savior, the Messiah of the Old Testament. And He is in the same spot. His Word is still true and you are drifting away from it. Brethren, the Word of God never changes. The author of the Word of God never changes. The one whom the Word of God reveals never changes. If anything changes, it is not because of Him. 
That's the very concept of apostasy, a drifting away. When an individual is out on a calm lake, a calm pond, and they fall asleep in that boat and they wake up and they're further away from the shore, their first thought is not, the shore must have moved away from me. They moved away from the shore. That's always how it's been. It's certainly true with this. When he says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, while it stands as an encouragement, it also stands as a reality check. Why are you turning from him? He's only been good to you. He's only given you reason for confidence. He's only given reason for you to stay. And you've departed from him. And it was in subtle ways. It wasn't overnight. But they had found themselves so far away. So he says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I think with that context comes a, I think, better understanding of just what it is that he's doing. This is not some theological observation that, that Jesus, who is in the flesh, who, who was born into this world that, that was from Nazareth, this man that walked on earth, that ate food and that communed with friends and family, that had enemies, that had people he met that were complete strangers that he became friendly with. This human being is actually eternal. I know that that's true, but that's not his argument here. That's not his point. In chapter 1, he demonstrates the eternality of God. In chapter 1 and in verse 10, he'd explain about the Son. The Lord in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain and they will grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up and they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will not fare, uh, will not fail. He says to the son, he says this, not to the angels. And so certainly he's eternal, but when we get to chapter 13 and verse eight, I don't believe he's talking about how he's been the same backwards throughout eternity before time began. He is. That's certainly the case. But I think this yesterday is historical and it means something to these brethren. And he reflects on yesterday throughout the epistle. Notice in chapter 2 and in verse 3, when he says that the transgressions under the old law will receive a just reward, he says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness with both signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. You notice that it was confirmed, past tense, to us by those who heard him. God was bearing witness with these miracles and spiritual gifts. And so that's the yesterday he's referring to. Why did you come to obey the gospel in the first place? Why did you leave that great law of Moses that was given through these great men of faith and the prophets that was administered through angels that had all of these wondrous works that were associated with it, with the Mount of Sinai as it thundered and as it burned with fire, all the wonderful and, and amazing and and quite frankly, fearful things that were manifested under the old law. Why did you leave that and come to this? Because it was trustworthy. It was true. It was verified. It was magnified in a greater degree. That's yesterday. That's yesterday. Remember that? Chapter 3 and verse 14. 
He says, we have become partakers of Christ. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfastly, remember when you were very confident? Remember when you had no doubt that this was the truth, the fulfillment of that old law? Chapter four and verse two. Indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith and those who heard it. Yesterday is when the gospel was preached to them. And they received it with open arms and great joy. Also in chapter 6, in verse 4, they were the ones yesterday who were enlightened. They had tasted the heavenly gift. They had become partakers of the Holy Spirit. They had tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. That is this messianic age, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the realization of all the blessings foreshadowed. That's yesterday. You benefited from this. You were so confident in it. Chapter 10 and verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. You had the outspokenness of great confidence yesterday. He says, recall the former days in verse 32 of chapter 10, in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. You were made a spectacle both of reproaches and the tribulations and partly why you became companions of those who were so treated. You had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. He's saying, remember yesterday? Remember that? Remember why you felt that way? Remember why you acted that way? Remember what provoked that faith in you? But today it's different. But Jesus Christ is not. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday. He was good back then. He was faithful back then. He was trustworthy back then. He had evidence to all his claims back then. And somehow and for some reason, when you had all that confidence, you had all that resolve to do his will, to follow him into the fire and to die for his name. Now things are different, but he's not changed. So what does that imply? What's happening? Remember in Revelation 2, when the angel is addressing certain churches, these seven angels, the seven churches, Christ is calling them to faithfulness and to endurance with some who were certainly only doing well. The church in Ephesus is first addressed. There are a lot of good things to say about them, but then he says this in verse four, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Who left who? It's, it's not that he says we've grown apart. You've left your first love. You've left Christ. That's the point. He is the same yesterday and today. Who changed? Who left who? And he is the same forever. That would call them to reflect on these things and also call them to a greater resolve to continue no matter what to do the Lord's will. Again, I believe that yesterday is not some theological consideration of his eternal nature back into the beginning, but it is historical. And I think it's the same thing with forever. In fact, in the Greek, the words are actually pi and ice unto ho the and ion ages. Not just yesterday, today, and forever, but yesterday, today, and unto the ages. Remember in Ephesians 2 and in verse 7, speaking of the grace of God and the salvation of those brethren, it says, 
This is the reason why he saved them by grace, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It started back in the first century when the gospel is preached and even Gentiles were added to this great body of Christ with hope. And it's continued throughout all generations, throughout all cultures, throughout all civilizations, throughout all times, throughout all world tragedies of great sorts. The gospel is ringing true and shining forth in all this darkness and it is bringing praise and honor and glory to the great God of grace throughout the ages. There's never going to be a time, there's never going to be a period under the sun where God's grace is not going to shine forth and be true and this good book be here to be a testimony about that. And so it is with Hebrews 13 and verse 8, and unto the ages. Time changes things. People change, situations change, circumstances change. But in each and every unique, positive or extremely negative situation, time or circumstance, Jesus is the exact same as he was yesterday. When things were going well, isn't that impressive? But isn't that something we need to be aware of? That things can't alter our faith. Things can't change the way we do things. We've got to maintain that confidence and that perspective and that faithfulness in Christ because, brethren, He doesn't change. He's immutable and He's always faithful. So consider it in regard to the immediate text, the immediate context. Verse 8 stands right in the middle, obviously, of verse 7 and in verse 9, but I think there's a great significance to that. He says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Right after he says, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. And so remember implies that they're no longer there to observe. You're recalling something you had observed before. These are leaders, whether it's elders or even preachers and teachers, just leaders, those who are in leadership roles that have shown by their good conduct the way to go. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ, but also have taught the word of God. Now they're not here. Isn't that something that strikes sorrow in our hearts when we have a great object of leadership in the church, whether it be an elder or a preacher or a teacher or a woman of great faith who has done so much good for a congregation and, and, and time takes them and that could shake our faith. But he says, Christ is the same. And so what they taught and what they lived, it was not them. It was summed up in Christ. Christ lived in them. And he's the same. Men and women come and men and women go. Great influences come and great influences go. But we're not following men. He says, we're following Christ. You thrived under that leadership but you thrived not because of who the leaders were, but because of who they followed by faith. Jesus Christ is the same. And so he gives warning in verse nine. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have no, not profited those who have been occupied with them. So remember the truth they lived and the truth they taught. It's the same now, even though they're not here. And so don't turn to these strange doctrines. The word is xenos, foreign doctrines. What are they foreign to? 
What are they a stranger to? To the truth that had been espoused and taught and exposited by these great men and women of faith that he alluded to in verse 7. Remember that. Remember the truth that they taught. The truth is the same. But I want us to think about this as well. He says in verse 7, remember and consider the outcome of their conduct. They did not just teach, they lived. And so there's a very moral implication to this. This is not simply doctrinal, though we'll see the doctrinal side of it going forward. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that means the doctrine doesn't change. That means the truth remains the same. But that means your conduct in relation to it must remain the same as well. And that's what he called them to beginning in chapter 13. He said, let brotherly love continue. Why why did he use that language? That it continue. It was happening and it happened in the past, but there are things that might keep you from doing it. But Jesus is the same. Let it continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22, there's an interesting uh, sentence that demonstrates what it means to be added to the body and to be renewed by the Spirit. He says, you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren. And he tells them, love one another fervently with a pure heart. He says, you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren. That is the word ice, into, unto, for the remission of sins, into, unto the remission of sins. When we obeyed the gospel that the Spirit revealed and our sins were washed away and we were added to the body, we were made a child of God unto loving the children of God. You understand that? This was something back then that they understood very clearly that I am a part of a family now and families love each other and respond to each other like Dan's prayer and look out for each other. But sometimes that gets cold and it gets cold because of various things. One of those things can be turmoil in our own lives. In chapter six and verse 10, he talked about how God won't forget about your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Remember in chapter 10, he said that you, when you were once illuminated, you were those who became companions of those who were treated poorly. And you had compassion on me and my chains. But that's obviously wavering. He's saying, don't stop. Let it continue. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know, the world will try to sell you this lie that it's okay to be a little selfish at times. You've gone through hard times. The Lord knows you've had your difficulties and you've only always looked out for other people, it's okay to be selfish a little bit. It's never okay. Let brotherly love continue. I want to tell you something, that back then that bolstered their faith as they helped others gain faith and find that kind of comfort in Christ. That bolstered them. And that's how it will happen now. When times were good for you and when times are bad, Jesus hasn't changed. And his lowest time in his life, it was low because Jesus was performing the greatest act of service ever to be performed on the face of the earth. Let brotherly love continue. Jesus is the same. He says in verse four, 
Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. And, and really, this is in the imperative. The numeric Standard Bible puts it this way. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. One of the things that they were wavering on was doctrine. You might remember some of the things that were being taught in the first century according to 1 Timothy chapter 4. It tells us there that an apostasy would come, as Paul warned Timothy. And one of the things that they would be teaching is that it's wrong to marry. Forbidding to marry. And, and we see that in, in churches today as if celibacy is somehow of greater spiritual virtue than marriage. But God created marriage. He created it there in that text, 1 Timothy 4, to be received with thanksgiving and sanctified by the word of God and, and by prayer. And so when these doctrines come along that are strange, Jesus remains the same. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. You're not to dishonor that which God put great honor on. And you're also not to undermine its great value through transgressing its very nature. It says, fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. In chapter 3 of Hebrews and in verse 13, this is what he said. Exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. How many times have marriages faltered because in time of conflict or stress or heartache or just personal conflict, they sought solace and comfort in one who did not belong to them. And they rationalized it in the moment. Jesus is the same. His law and marriage is the same. His doctrine is the same. It doesn't matter what happens to an individual. They don't break God's law on marriage. It's the same. Sexual purity is always to be upheld. But then he says in verse 5, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. What's changed? Why are you so discontent? Why are you struggling so much in this particular hour when back there the same thing was happening and you were joyful in Christ? What's happened? Jesus is the same. Circumstances may have just continued. Circumstances may have worsened, but Jesus has remained the same. He still wants you to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Matthew 6, Matthew 6 and verse 33. At once you joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, verse 34. But now why are you so in such a struggle with worry and ceaseless worry about these things? The Lord is still your helper. He's not left you. Don't leave him. He's the solution. Jesus Christ is the same. Then he says in verse 9, of course, don't be carried about with various and strange doctrines. You have embraced Christ, Hebrews, because he's the fulfillment of the old law. You've embraced Christ because you realized, finally, that you can't be saved through these sacrifices. You can't be saved because you're abstaining from these meats. You can't be saved because you're doing these things on these particular days. You're saved through Christ. And now someone's trying to convince you that your heart is established with foods, with abstaining from certain things, with all of these various rituals that have been nailed to the cross. 
And he tells them in verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. They don't even have a right to partake in what you're blessed to partake in. Why would you forsake that? And he gives them encouragement. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. You know what he's saying there? When you came to him, that's where he was. He wasn't inside Judaism. He wasn't inside the camp. He wasn't inside the city. You left to go to his blessing. And now you are turning away from him because you want comfort back in the past. You've got to bear his reproach. Let us continually, verse 15, offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and share for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Listen, it's not changed. You have. This is a strange doctrine. If you just look back to Jesus, you'll see that. You need to realize that while standing for truth is unpopular and it brings on great trials and suffering, it's certainly worth it. Just very briefly, consider these two applications. I think when we consider Hebrews 13 and verse 8 in its context, both the entirety of the epistle and right there in chapter 13, we come to realize that the truth of Christ is not to be adapted to our times and circumstances, but we are to adapt to the truth of Christ regardless of our times and circumstances. That's what Romans 12, 1 and 2 is teaching. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He accepted him and followed him by faith back here. Things have changed, no doubt, but he hasn't. People like to tell us that that's irrelevant now, that Paul was a misogynist, Paul was just in his times and in his culture, but now that's not relevant. I want to tell you, the truth of God is eternally relevant. It tells us so much in 1 Peter chapter 1, as Isaiah is quoted, all flesh is as grass and the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. This is the gospel by which we preach to you. It's the same message and it has the same relevancy today. We do not view God's word through the lens and filter of our culture or of our time or anything else. We view everything else through the reality of Scripture, a biblical worldview, if you will. Don't ever forget that. And lastly, I think, too, we need to understand that nobility of mind does not require skepticism of settled truths. I think that it's interesting come across this view from some Christians from time to time, whether explicitly or implicitly, where it's almost as if they think that there's more virtue and it displays more faith when we call into question very fundamental truths that we knew back when we obeyed the gospel. And it's like we uproot everything and unravel everything and we've got to relearn everything over again in order to have true faith. I need to deconstruct what I've already learned, relearn it in order for that to be legitimate faith. Is that what the Bereans did in Acts 17 and verse 11? They were noble-minded, but they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures to find out whether these things are so. They did not say, we've got to relearn everything. We've got to discount everything we know about the Old Testament. They said, we know that and we know it's true. And that's how we're testing this new thing. 
in the very context of Hebrews, he does not encourage us to tear everything down, everything that our ancestors have have worked hard to establish and and to continue throughout their their writing and their teaching that's preserved to this day. Remember verse 7 of chapter 13. Remember those who rule over you and the word that they spoke to you. Do you have to tear all that down? There are gospel preachers who are suggesting that we've got to forget all the church of Christ doctrine, so to speak, that we've learned. We've got to rediscover it all as if we've never had the Bible before in our lives. No one before us had the Bible. And we've got to just learn it afresh and new. Is that what the Bible teaches? Notice in chapter 5 of Hebrews and in verse 12. By this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. Is that good? To have to deconstruct and relearn it all? Notice what he says in chapter 6 and verse 1. Leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, faith toward God, and of the doctrines of baptisms, and the laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. You don't have to lay it again. It doesn't mean you forget about it and you leave it and you never study it again but you know it to be true. I don't have to question my belief that baptism is necessary for salvation in order to have true faith that Jesus did say, unless you are baptized, you will, be, you will not be saved. We don't have to deconstruct what we learned and know to be true. Every time we have a discussion with our friends of the denominations, we don't have to call into question every single thing that we've already learned. We've got to be open-minded We've got to study the scriptures to find out what they're saying, whether it's so, but we don't have to be skeptical about it. If we've learned it, it's true. It's in the Bible. It's established. God wants us to build on it, not tear it down and rebuild that thing. Otherwise, we're in an endless loop and we're not progressing. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There are settled truths that we have the answers to that do not need to be called into question. That's not faith, brethren. Faith is growing from what you have established in the truth and growing into a more perfect man in Christ. Before we dismiss our classes, we'll be led in a word of closing prayer.